If you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we'll pick up in verse 8 where I had left off previously. If you remember in our context here, Joseph had taken Mary to Bethlehem in Judea so they could register for a census that Caesar had declared. And at that time, she gave birth to Jesus and then wrapped him in strips of clothes. Some translations call it swaddling clothes. And laid him in a manger, verse 7, because there was no room for them at the inn. And now, of course, we've heard this Christmas story so many times, we might begin to expect that while lying a child in a feeding trough is probably common. Compared to our day, surely they were a very basic society. Uh, We might conclude that, you know, lots of newborn babies were probably laid in feeding troughs. But the reality is, not lots of babies were laid in mangers. It wasn't common at all. In fact, when we get into our passage further today, we'll discover it was so uncommon that even the shepherds would recognize that finding this baby laying in a feeding trough would substantiate that they had received a sign from God. I find the narrative, when I look at it, almost a little bit amusing that that a multitude of heavenly hosts, meaning angels, would appear to shepherds in a field and and then sing praises to God, yet the miraculous sign for the shepherds is discovering that there's a child in a manger. It is a child, of course, who is Christ the Lord. The manger will be their sign, or Simeon. It's the same Greek word as used by Jesus later on in Luke, chapter 11, verse 16, and elsewhere as he rebukes the unbelieving Pharisees and others. The crowds, they demanded a sign. They wanted to know for certain. They wanted him to be able to prove that he was from heaven. Jesus told them in Matthew twelve thirty nine that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign or an attesting miracle. It's another way to uh, define that word. Uh, and that no sign would be given except for the Simeon of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So this sign or miracle for these shepherds is that as they go on just a short trip over to Bethlehem that's nearby, they're going to find the baby Jesus just as the angel had said. Lying in a manger. It's not that that a child lying in a manger uh, itself is that miraculous, but it was so unusual that as the shepherds were to see it, They could be for certain that the words that the angel had said to them were true. The angel's proclamation in verse 11 is true that today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's read together beginning in verse 8. In the same region, that is the same region of Bethlehem, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. We're going to find in in chapter 2 of Luke, testimonies about the identity of this child in rapid-fire succession. Just as Luke would leave no room uh, for uh, a mistake to the identity of John the Baptist as the forerunner to Christ, now here he neither will uh, allow confusion about the identity and the significance of this baby child, the baby Jesus. So very often, you know, religious leaders of our day will they'll cut to the middle of a book of the Bible, to the middle of a gospel such as this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and provide an exhortation from Scripture, such as the one in Luke 12, 22, which says, Do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Yet yet at the same time, we can fail to clarify the identity of Jesus who spoke those very words or the basis of the authority by which Christ speaks. And Luke, now at the beginning of his gospel, is every natural person picking up that book would do, begin reading from the beginning. From the beginning, Luke's not going to permit any reader of his gospel to mistake the identity of Jesus. So in this chapter, we'll see first the shepherds declare who Jesus is. Then later, a man named Simeon. And then later, a prophetess again named Anna. All coming to the same realization That this child is the Holy Christ. He is the one on on whom the nation of Israel has long awaited for redemption and for the forgiveness of sins. Luke understands 
Very important. Luke understands that unless it is first established that Jesus Christ uniquely has the authority to forgive sins and thus grant us reconciliation to God the Father, until that is established, forget everything else in the middle of this gospel about not worrying. If Jesus does not first have the ability to save us from suffering in hell, the just penalty of our sins, we've got every reason to worry, folks. Because without Christ as our advocate, advocate with the Father, when we appear then alone before the judgment of God, we stand guilty and condemned in our every evil deed. It must begin, the gospel must begin with the identity of Christ. It's the only thing that affords us the luxury to not worry, right? God has sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save us. That's the good news that keeps us from worrying. It is written, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. Look at the universality, universal nature. Is that even a word? Universality? It is. Good. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It continues. He who believes in him, meaning Christ, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Just as the angel said to the shepherds in verse 10, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord? This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Praise be to God. I should emphasize before continuing, that at the end of this verse, verse 14, there should be present a conclusion to the phrase that goes something like this, On earth, peace among men with whom God is pleased. With whom He is pleased. That's as it is seen in both the ESV and the NASB. Uh, The Holman Christian Standard translates it, On earth, peace among men, to people he favors, meaning God favors again. And, and perhaps my best, uh, my favorite uh, preference here is how the NIV renders verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace on earth comes to those on whom God's favor rests. But until Christ reigns on his throne, there won't be peace. Peace is not going to come to all men. It will come to those on whom God's favor rests. And those of us who are in Christ have become the blessed of God. 
who have received the free and undeserved favor and grace of God. Yet the, the fact remains, when, when you look at passages like this, we have no idea, us, in, our, in our finite understanding, you and I, we don't know exactly who God's favor is resting on. Hard to see that. So, so appropriately, the angel tells the shepherds that this good news of a Savior in verse 10, it's for all the people. We declare it to all the people, all the world. This is one message about one Son of one God. It's appropriate for everyone, everywhere, all over the earth. Sometimes we in America will get chastened by people about our Western Christianity, right? Well, Jesus is good for you, but you know what about the rest of the world? May we remind them that Christ was born in Israel. He's a Middle Easterner, right? He is the Savior of every part of the world. As we continue, have you ever wondered, now all the times that you've heard this story, over and over, Christmas after Christmas, you ever wonder why God sent an angel to speak to shepherds? Of all the people that the angel could have announced this good news of the Christ, why shepherds? In fact, this may shoot you a curveball, shepherds were likely the only people who were present the night of Jesus' birth. The Magi that we read about in Matthew chapter 2 didn't arrive until sometime later, after Joseph and Mary had transitioned into what Matthew calls a house. The Magi didn't have an exact timeline of the birth. They, they followed the appearing of some kind of star. But the Magi were actually the ones who asked, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? They were asking him in Jerusalem because they didn't know exactly when or where the child was born. Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? They knew he had already been born. This is part of the reason, because of this indefinite timeline, part of the reason that King Herod ordered all male children under the age of two in Bethlehem to be slaughtered, to eliminate any competition for the throne. Neither Herod nor the Magi knew precisely the time of Christ's birth. So, it was most likely only these shepherds present that evening. That kind of messes up your nativity display, doesn't it? I'm sorry about that. You're going to have to break a couple of those pieces off. But recognizing this, this prominence of the shepherds does provide a nice transition to what I'd actually like to discuss with you today. Um, because sometimes we hear a narrative like this over and over again so repeatedly, we fail to really observe things and ask questions about it. This is especially true with the nativity scene and the shepherds, which is so uh, culturally defined. Um, on the night of Christ's birth, why did God send an angel first and only to shepherds? Why not Miley Cyrus? Why not a band of merchants or... or uh, Gypsies that are entertainers, why not politicians? 
You might think I'm maybe reading a little bit into this, judge for yourselves, but I suspect the reasoning that, that Luke is continuing, the reasoning uh, for this is that he is continuing the same pattern that he charted in chapter 1, that is Luke. The shepherds symbolize a prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament. Just as John the Baptist and the announcements of Gabriel earlier uh, uh, symbolize prophetic fulfillment, um, here too, with the shepherds, I believe it symbolizes prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament. When it came to spiritual guidance, Israel didn't have any spiritual shepherds. There, there was no one to care for God's people. In, in fact, when, when Herod asked those who should have been acting as shepherds, that is, the, the chief priests and the scribes in the courts, the religious scribes, when Herod called them and asked, where is the Christ to be born? They immediately responded, oh, everybody knows that. That's going to be in Bethlehem. And they even cited the prophet Micah from Scripture as their proof, right? You see that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, and they're citing Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Everyone at the palace there with, with King Herod knew that these magi were, were seeking to find and worship the Christ. Matthew tells us all of Jerusalem was troubled by it. They thought there was going to be some contention for the, for the throne with Herod. Maybe a contention with the Romans. Everyone was troubled by it. It wasn't a secret. But the priests and the scribes, though they were troubled by it, they didn't trouble themselves to go find the Christ. They didn't trouble themselves to worship the child in a manger. They knew Scripture. They quoted Scripture. They appeared as though at some level anyhow they had sound doctrine. They held positions of spiritual authority over the people. Even should have been acting as shepherds. Still, they, they possessed no yearning to find Christ and worship Him. They were false shepherds. God's beloved people needed shepherds. But those who were filling the position as shepherds were filling themselves with the fat of the people's sacrifices. Even the fat that was supposed to be burned wholly unto the Lord as an offering to Him. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 25. Uh, these types of people were no different than Eli and his wicked sons to whom the Lord said through the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 2.29, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? And you remember the story there with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. The Lord took their life. They were supposed to be the shepherds caring for the people. They were eating the fat, making themselves fat. And the writing of many Old Testament prophets exposes uh, the selfish nature, the unfaithful shepherds who were a persistent problem throughout the history of Israel. 
In Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Sound familiar to our uh, uh, reading earlier from Jeremiah 23? Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They, the sheep, were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. Previously, as we read together in the scripture reading from Jeremiah 23, God rebuked them saying, Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. There were no shepherds for God's people. Those who deemed themselves shepherds weren't acting as shepherds. To borrow uh, terminology from Matthew 7.15, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. So the question needs to be answered, you know, was this lack of shepherds, this lack of shepherding, a problem that was isolated to ancient Israel? Just back in a few hundred years before Christ. Or is it something that has plagued all generations of God's people? Yes, all generations of God's people, including today. And I believe this is one of the reasons why the first ever come to Jesus meeting was with shepherds. Real, authentic, genuine shepherds from the field. So I've titled this what will probably be a series, Calling All Shepherds. Since I'm already on page four of my script, uh, I think we'll be at least another week after this, maybe two we'll be talking about the calling of shepherds. This is very important for us, very important for me. The timing is appropriate. Uh, Most churches in America are deficient of honest shepherds. We've been praying here locally among leadership that God would raise up more godly shepherds. If you've been attending Port St. Lucie Bible Church for any length of time, you've learned from Scripture that shepherding or pastoring is a function of what the Bible calls elders. In 1 Peter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God among you. The term shepherd is the same as what we now translate pastor. The elders are to pastor or shepherd the flock of God, according to Peter. 
And the Apostle Peter continues saying, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. To the flock. The four currently acting Port St. Lucie Bible Church elders are local shepherds of the flock. Two of us, Pastor Weiler and myself, are financially compensated by the congregation in accordance with Scripture, 1 Timothy 5, 17, 1 Corinthians 9, 14. And that is due to the enormous amount of time required uh, to weekly preach and teach week in and week out, uh, of course, to lead worship and to attend to numerous other duties. Earl Baker, who is with us on the right, on my right, and Nathan Buchanan in the front here on my left, they are also elders and shepherds of the flock. But pastoring or shepherding, it's not a job, so to speak. It is definitely a calling of God. Calling of God to care for His flock. And many today, you know, visualize pastoring as a uh, preaching, pastoring, whatever it may be, as a kind of a career. You know, something that you advance through. Start with a small church, and you know, if you're any good at what you do, which primarily would be packing the seats out if, if you're in most churches, if you're good at that, you're going to get offered a significantly higher salary by another church across town or some other place, and you'll move up to a more sizable congregation with nicer facilities. At some point, if you're really good, you might get a radio program or other. Of course, the pastors who are in the large ornate churches are obviously more pleasing to God because there is more money present, right? We can slip into thinking that way. Size isn't necessarily a determiner Finances isn't necessarily a determiner one way or another. There are good small churches. There are good large churches. There are poor small churches. There are poor large churches. Poor in spirit, that is. Now, as we think talk about money, I, I'm not against paying a pastor well. <laughs> Scripture would say, especially to those who work hard at preaching and teaching, the time... Involved with that. And for a congregation to uh, somehow think it's spiritual to keep their pastors broke or, you know, at the nearly new shop and getting shoes with holes in them rather than giving their children nice shoes at Christmas, you know, that can't be reconciled to Scripture. We all know that. We all know that. So I'm not against paying pastors reasonably. But we have shepherds today who have, through the offerings of the people of their congregation, God's people, purchase for themselves large estates, expensive clothing, fancy automobiles, some even jet aircraft for personal use, feeding themselves the fat while starving the flock of any diet of genuine scriptural meat. Interesting how the most wealthy of the wealthiest churches and pastors, there are exceptions, but it seems like they always have the lightest doctrine, doesn't it? Almost always. There are exceptions. 
They don't feed the flock. They starve off the flock and they keep the fat for themselves so often. And then, of course, from a position of prestige or power, with force and with severity, Scripture says, they dominate people and say you can't challenge that. You can't challenge it. Unchallenged submission. So, just from the biblical passages we've looked at today, Old Testament, you tell me, who do those type of pastors look like? They are the false shepherds. So I'm going to close today just offering a couple of observations that we can chew on from Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. And then next week we'll continue the conversation on the calling of shepherds. In verse 8, the angel of the Lord did not go to the spiritual elite in Jerusalem, nor the highly educated, nor the popular celebrities of their day. They had them. God sent the angel to call shepherds. And shepherding was one of the lowliest occupations in Israel. It wasn't a prideful occupation to ascend to and to be highly esteemed by all the people around in town. Shepherding was far closer to the bottom of the barrel as far as being esteemed. The, profess, uh, the profession of shepherding, especially for the hireling who didn't own the sheep, it didn't provide great wealth, fine clothing, or prestige. Consequently, it was not uncommon for, for hirelings, those shepherds who, who were hired to care for the sheep, to abandon their posts and leave the shepherds vulnerable to attack, or the sheep vulnerable, unguarded. If a better opportunity came along, they'd just leave the sheep. The shepherds who stuck it out for the long term usually did so for one reason. They loved the flock. They loved the flock of God. Some of you have heard me describe uh, my dad's uh, flock that when I was very young, at one point surpassed a thousand lambs. They were by, uh, by most part animals which were defenseless, easily injured in, in wet or other weather, inclement weather. They'd be dirty, smelly, quickly led astray. They did little more than bleat and eat and sleep. They would follow Dad's voice from the pasture up to our barn, quite a long distance, the thousand of them all together, um, because they, they knew they'd get something good to eat. They were happiest that way, being fed well. And though raising sheep was profitable for my dad, uh, the money really didn't offset, offset all the work and responsibility involved in feeding and doctoring, trying to keep the lambs out of trouble, trying to keep the predators out. And when I asked Dad why he did it for so many years, <laughs> he said it was because he loved caring for them. And at the end of each year when he <laughs> took those fat little sheep to market, he said it was painful for him. It was painful. But when you raise livestock, it becomes a matter of economics, right? Right? That's what it is as a farmer. 
So when people ask me, using that illustration, why anyone would want to become a shepherd of a church, paid or unpaid, board member, whatever it might be, the answer can never be because I like authority and giving commands. Sheep aren't always that great a listener. It can't be because pastoring or becoming an elder of a church is an esteemed title to add to the resume. The position is actually quite lowly. Um, It sure can't be because it's an easy part-time gig. Because the flock can never entirely be left alone. The only motive I would offer a man for becoming an elder member of an elder board as we have here, or a pastor of a flock, the, the only motive I could offer him would be foremost only one. You have to love the flock of God and want to do what's good for them. Even though you know yourself you're imperfect as a leader, as a man, you have to love the flock of God. That's the only legitimate reason to want to be an elder. And as we seek elders for this church... We'll discuss this as we go towards um, the fall and a meeting usually held uh, in November sometime. Um, we're praying about elders, qualified elders. And uh, as you listen to this, you, you must be honest with yourself. If your heart aspires to the office for any other reason other than for the, shake, uh, for the sake of the flock, then run. Because elders with motives of pride or, or desire for position or power, they'll end up like Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. They suffered the judgment of God because they weren't good shepherds. God knows the heart. And if you're not being called by God for those reasons, a short time of holding a church title, it isn't worth the loss that you will suffer before God. It isn't worth it. So honestly, assess your motive. That's absolutely essential, excuse me. When our existing board nominates elders, assigning a motive isn't always easy, is it? Only God knows the heart and the real reason that someone would aspire to be an elder. We all know that that the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9. We can't even understand our own heart much of the time. How can you discern other people's heart with accuracy? Assigning motives to people, that's one of the biggest struggles we have, isn't it? We sign a motive, we find out later we were wrong. The Bible warns against that. So, so it's very hard to discern motives, both of ourselves and of others. So for one who, according to 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, aspires to the office of overseer, that is elder, an inner motive is difficult for us to assess. Is there another way? Is there another way? The answer is yes. There are other ways, and and there's one in verse 8 I'd like you to look with me as I use this for an illustration. 
In verse 8 it says, in the same region, meaning near Bethlehem. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Since you and I can't see hidden motives, we have to ask, what can we see? Right? We can see both behavior and ability and aptitude, right? And regardless of your occupation, think about what you do now for a living. Regardless of what that is, whether you're a restaurant owner or a mechanic or working for the phone company, you can pretty much tell whether a person possesses any potential to do the job that you're doing, right? You just sit back and observe them for a little while. Take a look at them. When I was working on a sheet metal crew for Delta Airlines back in the day in Atlanta, we had a Lockheed L-1011 come in, wide body, huge aircraft, similar to a, a DC-10. And it came in for overhaul, and the aluminum belly was so corroded that in certain spots you could stick a screwdriver through it in the belly. It was supposed to be pressurized, you know. But it came in for overhaul. It was time to inspect and replace So we replaced the entire bottom section of that aircraft, the belly skin, from behind the rear wheels all the way to the front of the, uh, behind the back of the front wheels all the way to the rear landing gear, 39 feet. We had a team that pulled that down and we drilled out thousands of rivets. We we took down the corroded skin. We laid up a new skin. We back drilled it for the holes. Then you got to fill in all those holes with solid rivets, right? It's a lot of work. took many weeks. One guy is on the outside with a rivet gun. His partner is on the inside, backing him up as they set these rivets back into place and flatten them. And as a sheet metal man, you knew another sheet metal man when you saw and heard him in action. The bursts of the rivet gun are smooth and consistent. You can tell. And we had one new fella. He was way at the back by the main landing gear. And you could hear him. Pow, bam, bang. No matter how many times you showed him how to hold the rivet gun and to pressure the trigger of the rivet gun, He couldn't keep from making divot marks across that new shiny skin. He just didn't have it. He did great when assigned to other tasks on the airplane, but he didn't have the skill or the aptitude. You could tell just by watching and listening to him. Do you get the point? You've all seen this. All of you have observed this in your own profession. And the angel of the Lord descended onto these shepherds with God's message, I can just about imagine what he said. If this was Gabriel, we don't know for sure because it doesn't name him, but if it was like the angel in the, in the earlier uh, accounts in chapter 1, if this was Gabriel, I can about imagine him saying to Michael, Hey Michael, looky over there. There's some real bona fide shepherds. God is sending us to some real shepherds. They are staying out in the field. King James says they were abiding. They're they're in the place that shepherds are supposed to be. They're with the sheep. 
They're abiding there. Not only that, but it's the middle of the night. They're not napping. What are they doing? They're keeping watch over their flock by night. They hadn't abandoned the sheep in the middle of the night to catch last call at the local bar or to run off to another occupation. They were keeping watch over their flocks by night and they were faithful in doing what shepherds are supposed to do. Why? They're concerned about the sheep. They love the sheep. And when the angel called the shepherds, they were already doing what shepherds are supposed to be doing. Get the point from the illustration? Because they had the hearts of shepherds. All the angel had to do was recognize what was already there. What they saw and what they heard. This is one way the current elder board identifies shepherds for nomination. When providing qualifications for overseers, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 describe character traits that should already be present in the individual. They're acting like shepherds even before they're asked to be recognized as a shepherd. Why? Because it isn't about achieving a title for them. It isn't about self. It's because they love doing the work of a shepherd. They're already doing it. And a man can't aspire to the office of elder by thinking, you know, I'll become gentle and peaceful and, and uh, hospitable, free from the love of money and all those other qualifications after I become affirmed to the office of overseer. Can't be after. Elders called by God are already recognizable in the work of the ministry they're already doing. It's a way to identify it. So next week we're going to discuss a little more in detail, in a little more detail, what the work of a church shepherd involves. Because unless we know what a shepherd actually does, it's hard to aspire to that task. But let me say before we depart, it involves a lot more than teaching and preaching. Quite a lot more. Um, you know, from famous figures on the radio, Chuck Swindoll and others, John MacArthur, we might get the idea, uh, listening to them, that all a pastor does is preach and teach, because that's all we hear on the radio for that 30 minutes, right? Yeah, we need to understand there's 30 or more other elders there with John MacArthur at his church. And most of them are not assigned to a weekly teaching and preaching role. There's many other tasks when caring for a church, especially a large church as that one. Um, there's more to leading a church as we will see, and then we look at the remainder of our passage here in Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to draw in some principles from 1 Thessalonians next week. Even Pastor MacArthur doesn't get completely removed from the requirements of being an elder, such as hospital visitation and other things. If, and if a pastor ceases to demonstrate a care for the flock, he ceases then to be an example to the flock, and he ceases to be a pastor. At that point, challenging to us, all of us, myself included. So come next week again, come back. It's going to be very important for our church, virtually every congregation to some level, this is the truth, virtually every congregation to some level begins to take on the personality of the elders. Shows how important this is. Every elder 
is a teacher by example, so people start to value what the elder values. Every teacher, no matter what role you're in, is a teacher by example. Scripture says, let not many of you become teachers, for you will incur a stricter judgment, right? So being an example, we'll talk about that, and other roles in being an elder. No matter what level uh, you're leading or teaching, um, you're being a role model. That ought to give us a little bit of fear and trembling. But don't worry. Angel said, do not fear. We'll talk about that next week as we pick up where we left off. Let's pray. Well, dear Father, as we consider your, your precious flock that were redeemed with uh, the blood of your Son, Lord, and, and your special concern about each and every one who is who's a Christian. Father, uh, we're challenged to think about how to um, guide and to serve uh, one to another. Lord, whether being uh, a leader of some sort, a teacher of a class, an elder, or older women teaching the younger, it, it is a work uh, that is challenging. It's not only challenging because we're all people, Lord, uh, we're a challenge of ourselves. When we look at our own selves, Lord, we see uh, where we lack. Yet, Father, you've given us the scriptures to discern how a, a godly person, male or female, is to act and behave. And, Lord, as we um, become imitators of you, imitators of Christ, Father, we pray that, that you will draw us closer as we continue to look in the, uh, the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, in the life of Christ, in how he loved and how he cared for and how he challenged people. Lord, we, we know that is all an act of love. So Father, thank you for challenging us and ourselves. And uh, Lord, we, we pray for your guidance as a congregation. As we look at uh, our member meeting next week, Father, as we can uh, continue to pray about the fall and about the future of our church, we pray that you will give us hearts like Christ. Father, for all those who weren't able to make it today, maybe even just traveling uh, for the holiday, others who are ill in bed, Lord, we pray for their uh, encouragement in their hearts. Father, we pray again for uh, Carolyn, who just lost a mom. So many others struggling, Father. Help us to be the body of Christ, ministering to one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.